James McMahon. I have obsessive compulsive disorder. Obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD is a mental disorder in which the person has repeated thoughts. They're called obsessions or feels the need to perform routines repeatedly. They might be internal or external. They're called compulsions to an extent that generates distress or impairs general functioning. I've had it for over 20 years. Not that I knew the name for what was happening to me during that time. We call OCD the Downing Disorder. It's much misunderstood. Treatment is hard to come by. Anyone tuning in from the UK will be aware of the crisis point that mental health services hit some time ago. But if you can access treatment, it can be effective. I'm on a journey. I was first diagnosed in 2008 at the age of 28. I rejected the diagnosis. My flat was messy, the dirty dishes piled high in the sink. I didn't have OCD. Ten years later, I had what may have been a breakdown. I fought for another diagnosis. I got it. I've had some treatment now, the gold standard. Cognitive Behavioural Therapy and ERP. That's short for Exposure Response Prevention. But I need more. So much more. My condition has come close to ruining my life. Even taking it from me and I'm far from recovered. Sometimes I'm not sure I ever will be, but I'm in the fight. The OCD Chronicles started life as a website. A place to share OCD stories. Somewhere to cheer on other sufferers and fight misinformation. And it's a podcast now, and it exists to do the same thing. But I also want to chart my own story. I want to be better. So badly, I want to be better. I'll introduce you to the people I meet on this journey. Mental health professionals, researchers, other sufferers. It would mean the world to me if you joined me. In this episode of the OCD Chronicles, I talk to Jack Pridmore, who does sterling advocacy for OCD awareness and has a life story that's both remarkable and yet, to me at least, also extremely relatable. The misery of OCD has commonalities, whatever the specifics. Jack used to be a footballer. I am obsessed with football, in a good way. Yeah, I've got to say, I absolutely love doing this episode. I'll tell you what, let's start with who you are and what it is you do. So my name's Jack Pridmore. In an OCD sense, in 2013, I did a show on the BBC called Extreme OCD Camp, which was a two-part show where myself and five other uh, younger people went to America to do some ERP, uh, Exposure Response Prevention Therapy. And since that sort of time, OCD, talking about OCD and talking about mental health has been a you know really big part of my life to the point where the end of 2019, I wrote a book called Life on the Other Side, which is a sort of a lived experience book. 
Um, day to day, I am a business consultant and strategist and the CEO of a small UK-wide charity called the Accessible Foundation. Well, tell me tell me about football. Tell you the football side of it. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> so football was, um, I think you might, I think you'll relate to this actually, James. I think football, uh, my life in general has kind of felt like it's partitioned into lots of separate areas where I'm this person, now I'm this person, now I'm this person, now I'm this person. And for me, football was always from sort of little five or six until, you know, 22, 23. Football was the dominant part of my life. So that involved being, um, you know, being attached to professional clubs, Premier League clubs, you know, um, up until I was, you know, sort of 14, 15. In time playing football abroad, I took my UEFA B license when I was 18. So I was sort of one of the younger people to, to take that course. Um, I was coaching first teams in the Ryman League. If you'd have asked six, seven, eight-year-old me, even 22, 23-year-old me what my life would look like, it would be football from start to finish. It's all I wanted to do. I wanted to play abroad for a little bit. Then I wanted to come home, start a coaching career um, and and go into management, ideally. Um, and that was all sort of on track, I think, until, until I suppose OCD jumped in and... Um, put some put some barriers in place however there is also a big part of it that's choice based as well I think I got to like 22 23 and I realized for me and this is just for me as well but for me it was a case of right it's football or everything else I haven't got the capacity to dedicate myself to more than one thing in this manner so it was either do I choose football and I have to give everything else up and you know maybe advocacy or uh, charity work down the line or anything like that, or do I stick with football? And that's that's the thing I do forever. And I felt like I could be more useful and have a broader, bigger, more beneficial to myself and everyone else life if I if I stepped away from football than I did about, yeah, just before I turned 23. I went away to Erica for the TV show I mentioned, and the aim was going to be to come back. I, I was due to be going out to Germany, actually, for like a lower league side to spend a bit of time there. Um, and a few days before I was supposed to do that, I just decided I, I, this isn't for me anymore. I'm definitely going to come back to football because I am football obsessed in a good way, in a in a healthy obsessive way. Yeah. Um, but yeah. can you tell me a little bit about your OCD story um, when it reared its ugly head? So first time was when I was around six. Um, I was walking to school and. Um, you know, a different, not far as well, school's pretty much the end of the road as well. So a different time, I was walking on my own. Um, and I remember just seeing this rock in the road. And you know what it's like when you're five, six years old, you know, you're sort of, you, you're, it's Wembley, isn't it? Walking along the road, you're kicking a stone along and it's literally, it's Wembley for you. Um, so I'm sort of, I'm walking along, I'm, I'm kicking stones, I'm sort of like, I'm thinking about the goals I'm hopefully going to score at break time. You know, I'm thinking about the food at lunchtime, I'm hopefully going to avoid and just like general sort of six-year-old thoughts, I suppose. Um, and I noticed a, I noticed a sort of a, a big stone in the road, like a big stone, right? Not even that, you know, I'm talking just a regular size stone, really. But I see this stone in the road and I just feel my belly starts to ache and my head doesn't really feel right. And I feel quite lightheaded and I just feel a little bit faint. And I don't feel very well all of a sudden. Um, and so I'm thinking I'm, I'm not well or I'm going to be sick or something's going to go on. Um, but again, I just sort of I carry on with it. I keep walking. And within 15, 16, 17 steps, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I can't get into that stone. And then 
that thought develops to, oh, imagine if a car hit into that stone and then it sort of, you know, it itched into the side. Again, like, you know, you're, you're six years old, you're thinking about explosions and big things and things you see in movies. And then I'm thinking, but what if there's a, what if there's a family in that car and they, you know, they might get hurt? And then it, what if they hit into a wall and actually gets killed? You know, that's not good. But what if another car comes at the same time and they hit in and that's two families getting killed? What if cars behind them crash in and now we've got four or five cars, you know? in this little residential road in the council estate that I lived on. Um, so it's quite unlikely force, but these are the things that are starting to go. So it's sort of developing, it's spiraling. And then it goes to the point where I'm now feeling awful. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe I should move the stone, really. If I move the stone, then it stops all the things. And that's a good thing. And I'm doing, that's the right thing to do. But those things are bad. Moving the stone's good. So I walk to school. I'm not myself. I'm not talking. Um, sitting there i'm uncomfortable i didn't don't answer my name in the register i just i'm not well i'm not myself um i stood up 20 15 20 minutes in i stood up i sprinted out of the school uh i sprinted to that stone i moved that stone to the side of the road and i realized i had done a great thing because i've moved it and now everything's better in my life and everything's better for the rest of the world and now, you know, adult me realizes that um, it was my first compulsion from my first major obsession and probably the the route that took hold, I suppose. So I'm sure there might have been things before that I don't remember, but that's the one that I most vividly recall. Um, and then that side of things would just continue from there on, really. So lots of trying to keep people safe in certain ways, lots of um, even we talk about football, you know, on the football pitch, like. I might control the ball with my right foot and it would make sense for me to touch it with my left, but instead I'll touch it with my right. And, you know, people would just think I was being cocky or arrogant. It was just that's what felt right to do. Um, you know, doing that thing where, you know, where you're um, where you're a kid maybe and you're going, uh, or an adult <laughs> with our brains maybe, and you're going through a, uh, for a tunnel and you do the whole, can I hold my breath for the whole tunnel? Uh, going to watch Orient play and, if we, you know, we go into a certain turnstile, we're going to win. If we uh, go into another turnstile, we're going to lose. And then being that seven or eight-year-old kid that I'm actually going out now, I'm asking the stewards to let me leave because yeah, I'm going yeah. back in. Yeah, um, yeah. So for a long while, I think I was just kind of the quirky kid, kind of the strange kid. Um, had some like major trauma when I was um, eight. My brother passed away and then uh, when he was only 14 and my dad got seriously ill within three weeks of that. Um, and in both cases, I was a carer for the both of them. So there was a lot of sort of like, not their life in my hands, but feeling like their life was in my hands. Um, and then it stayed at that sort of level until I was about 14, 15. And then my life just went in one big go. Um, right. It then became that that got to the unbearable level. That's where it got to the point where it was every waking thought. That's where it got to the point where I was waking up in the morning completely disappointed that i was awake that i was alive still that's where the panic attack started to you know be not a case of one a week but you know one an hour um it just it, it became an awful 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 time um i was trying to juggle you know football in the evenings alongside school and this and you know looking after my dad and um it just didn't being a kid really um, so yeah, so 14 to sort of like 21, 22, 23, uh, it was a real, real difficult period, really difficult period. But it got to the point where I hit my, I suppose, sort of rock bottom 21, 22, which is what made me, um, des- I-, I was on a long waiting list as well for some, for ERP, a long, long, long waiting list. Um, and then I saw, um, 
via a charity website about this TV show that's being made and this opportunity to, to get ERP. And I knew that they were filming it in two months. And I was like, well, you know what? This is pretty much the only way I could get something that quick for what I need here. You know, it's worth a go. Um, and then put in for it. And it was, yeah, it was, the, it was the best thing I ever did. It was the best decision I ever made completely. So when did you get a diagnosis? So I got, I think my formal diagnosis was 17. Right. Um, I'd been going to my GP probably three times a week from about 13. Right. The, the terms teenage angst was used a lot. I think they really didn't understand it. I found details of OCD and I'd come to them and I'd been like, listen, I think this is what this is. This is why I think this is what it is. Um, and I think the GP that I was seeing at the time had a quite flippant attitude to it and quite a stereotypical understanding of OCD. So I think what I was describing didn't match up to what they knew, yeah. which is something that we're all used to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it took, it took to 17 really. But what I would say is, I think to anyone that's around that sort of age that might be listening to this now, um, I don't think it would happen that way now. I think that's a comforting thing to think of. I think it's more understood professionally up that way. I mean, I was, I think, a very, for people that understand OCD, I was a very textbook case. Yeah. It was obviously OCD. Like yeah. now, I just, it was so clear. Like it was literally written on me. Um, so yeah, it took to I was about 17. Man, that story about the stone, doing this podcast and just interacting with uh, the OCD community, you know, I hear so many stories. I mean, to be honest, even I did a piece, uh, an article for The Face magazine recently about a like an OCD diary, like a day. It was for like mental health awareness week. There's a whole different topic about whether weeks like that are useful or not. Mm. But I mean, it, you know, I, I wrote it down and it was like my life. And to be honest, there were things I left out of it because I was just like, no one will understand this. But even seeing what I wrote down and what I'd submitted, I was sad for myself, if that makes sense. But like, I've heard so many stories. 100%. Yeah, I've heard, I've had so many stories now doing this podcast, and just I, I was struggling a little bit just with that story about the stone because it's almost like when you were talking about the goals you would score at lunch or what you were going to have for lunch. I was just thinking, God, I just I I think I just about remember a time before OCD. Um, can you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's I feel like I have to sieve through my memory to find it a little bit now. Definitely um there's a lot that i thought was personality that i now probably appreciate maybe wasn't mm. um in in certain aspects of, of the way i was as a particular as a child um but yeah i mean i do I, I do i think there's a lot of spliced in happy childlike memories in there for sure you know um so so i do i have i have patches of memory but i wouldn't say i have a block of it so i wouldn't say it was like before that point everything felt like a normal childhood yeah it was patches normal childhood and then they they got thinner and thinner and thinner as i got older and then they evaporated it felt um and then now what i do as an adult is i build those things back up again you know right. that's the worst yeah. i feel like ocd took all these things away from me and then now i'm sort of slowly bringing them all back into my basket yeah no totally did you have you had treatment after the tv show or yeah yeah so i continued with erp um uh later on did um a course of uh just back to cbt i did group things done quite a lot of speaking at groups now as well especially when the show was like very visible for for a little while as well so i was invited to do that quite a lot which was you know real real like pleasure and honor um, so yeah, no, I definitely did it afterwards. I'm I'm a big fan, I suppose, big believer of sort of upkeep as well and maintenance, and sometimes just checking in with myself and saying, "Oh, that's not 
that's not how that should be. Maybe I should be going and speaking to a group or being a part of a group again. So yeah, so I, I've done uh, less after, definitely, but then I've got a lot more in my life. Actually, I asked for my medical notes recently, um, which is an absolute laugh, um, asking for your for your mental health notes. So I was like, you know, I, there was a few things I wanted to find out about. I wanted to make sure that, that the story that I understood, I basically wanted to make sure that the amount of doors that I felt like I was knocking on at 13, 14, 15, that I was right. I basically wanted to know that, yeah, I was doing that properly and I was doing the right things. Um, so I asked for, so I, I got the, the information um, and I looked at my notes and it's, it's, a, it's a difficult read. I probably wouldn't recommend it to people. Um, but when I was looking through that, the thing that I was overcome by was just how much of it there was and how constant it was and how many different professionals I saw and different therapies and therapists um and i think i got to the point before a way to do the show i got to the point of thinking this type of therapy doesn't work for me erp cbt whatever um and therapists just don't get me and you know i was completely wrong it's the best thing i've ever been wrong on really the yeah. therapy did work for me the timing yeah. wasn't right that's you know the, i think for me it becomes like a lock i think recovery is a lot like a lock i think it needs all of these things to be in tune at the right time when you try and open that door so the therapy wasn't wrong the therapist might have been wrong in that time or the therapist might have been right, but the therapy wasn't what I needed at that time or both of those things were right. But the timing for me was probably wrong. And so at 22, 23, I was at that ebb where I needed something to work. I was ready. I was open. I was engaged. And then the therapy was right. And the therapists were right. And I flew. Um, but yeah, that's uh, I've always, I've always tried to view it that way. That sort of that, that lock and key action. That's amazing, man. This is, I mean, you've got a good story, you know, like you seem like someone who was, I mean, not like not vanquished it, but you seem like someone who has a good toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot in it. I think there's a lot in it now. And I appreciate that as well. I mean, I think I, I use the term, the amount of like buzzwords that I've taken to my vocabulary over the last 10 years is amazing. Um, but I feel like, um, Sometimes I get frustrated because I see people getting upset about some of the things that professionals or other people with with OCD or any other mental health condition will will suggest to them. Bella Mackey did a did a book, didn't she, about running? And I know that that's a regular a regular thing. You know, you get doctors and therapists say to you all the time, you know, about exercise and you know, go for a run and this and that. And I'll see a lot of memes or I'll see a lot of people online saying, you know. I don't need to go for a run. I need therapy, and that's true. It's absolutely true, and I completely agree with it. However, if that running makes a zero point two percent difference to your life, that's kind of dramatic for me. Zero point two percent is a lot when you're feeling that bad. So I think of that, you know, exercise or you know, self care or all of these different things. I think I try and incorporate the bits that can help me as part of a sort of mentally healthy diet. Um, now all of those side ones, those minor, the, the more minor ones, why don't you go for a run? Why don't you do this type of self-care routine or this or this? They need to be there alongside good gold standard therapy. They absolutely do. Um, however, they have a place. Um, so I think my toolbox has got bigger because I've become more open-minded to it as well. So before I was just sort of, you know, fingers in my ears saying, no, it's CBT and it's medication or it's nothing. And that's it. Whereas the reality was it was a little bit of everything. Yeah, I think I'm actually coming around to that myself, um, pr- probably because I think that I'm in touching the distance of uh, some proper help, really, for the first time ever. Uh, so, so I feel like I'm, Amazing. I feel like I'm kind of allowed to now be okay. Well, how can I create 
a more complete package. Um, but I mean, I should say just for the benefit of listeners of this podcast, uh, you know, I talk about this quite a lot on here, but you know, I, I have some real problems with my weight. It's definitely linked to OCD. Um, when I am at my lowest, I eat compulsively. Um, and I'm trying to do something about that. And consequently, exercise is quite difficult for me because I put on so much weight. But yesterday I was stuck in this endless loop. I was sat on the sofa and I was just stuck. And my wife was away this weekend. So it was my job to clean the guinea pig hutch, which is not for yeah. you because you were a sports person. But for me, cleaning the guinea pig hutch is the most arduous task in my life. You have to bend, you have to get down, you have to lift. It's like a nightmare. And I, I and I somehow managed to get off the sofa and did it and got a total sweat on. And in those moments, I do think, yeah, there is something to be said for exercise. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's great. As well. Firstly, as well, so um, I'm really pleased to hear that seems like there's something on the horizon for you. I think that's vital. I think you actually make a really great point there as well about the allowing yourself it because the timing's right for it too. Yeah. So, I mean, I can say this about the mentally healthy diet and the incorporating all these things, but I wasn't saying it before I got serious help. Yeah. So, yeah. like, I definitely sort of, it's the timing of it has to be right as well. You know, I'm not saying to anyone li- listening to this, you know, why don't you go for a run? Everything will be great um, because it does not work that way. And it's wrong for anyone to sort of like think it or be told it. Um, however, I think when you start to build that whole platform, that foundation, once the, the more serious stuff comes in, it sort of, it allows you the capacity, I think for the peripheral options. Yeah. I think when someone's, when you're at your lowest and someone's saying, you know, why don't you do more of this or more of that? Or why don't you read more? Or why don't you have nice long baths and all this sort of, all these great things that can be great on their own. Um, I think it, you haven't got the capacity for it because you're yeah. so laser focused on getting through the day. Where do you where do you bring it in? Like, whereas when once you're starting to get some serious help and some great help and it's making a benefit to you, I think it allows you that opportunity. So I think the best way of describing it, I think you're absolutely completely right. I think you make a really great point with it. I think one of the best ways to look at it for people that are maybe along that recovery journey or starting the therapy side of things would be that if you're going to ride that wave, maybe that's the time to probably pull those things in. And yeah, I think the timing of that is is really vital, and it definitely was for me. I think that whole thing of, uh, you know, we don't need to get outside and get some exercise. We just need proper treatment. I think that stuff is just like a cry of desperation from people who know that they're not right and they need some proper treatment. But I think that um, we've we've solved we've solved it, Jack. Like you know, we, we've solved it today by saying that it's a, a three hundred and sixty thing. I'm just going to go back to football. Because I'm just, I, I'm just very excited. I'm talking to someone who is of a degree of competence at football. Um, tell me about <laughs> within football. Like, I presume you were very ill within football. Yeah, big time. Yeah, awful, awfully ill. Um, yeah, I mean, what, I, I tell you what, James. One of the things that made me realise this is the one where it's done. So I played centre midfield. Um, some of my ex-teammates, they might say centre midfield was my position rather than that I played it. <laughs> but <laughs> centre midfield was my designated position. I remember having a game towards the end of playing and I had the realisation of I need to touch every corner flag. I need to touch every single corner flag before this game ends. And I know we're at the end of the game. I know we're nearly there. Um, we're also attacking as well and we're losing at this point. Um, and we are really camped in their area. Um, so. I remember getting the I remember 
getting the ball. I, I'd done this. I'd got the two furthest corners like quite easily as well. We were attacking them. Um, then they got a, they end up getting a corner, which is beautiful. Um, so I could go and just I literally went and stood in front of the corner for a second and made it like I was wasting time, which is silly when you're one nil down anyway. And then we then sort of counterattack from that corner actually, and the ball comes to me. Um, and rather than sort of like moving forward a bit, I sort of slow the play down a little bit. Um, I move over to the to the left, and then I sort of I make it as if I can't really see that there's someone chasing me from the right side. So I end up sort of facing down to that corner. I basically force the ball or force myself as if it, I'm under pressure into that bottom left hand corner, so we could um, so it could get to that point. They then got a throw at that point. Everyone on the pitch is looking at me like, how on earth did you screw that up? Um, I touched the corner flag and I, you know, completed the task that OCD had set me. And then I went in the change room. Everyone's looking at me, of course. Um, we lost the game. I sat in the, like the showers and the, and the toilet, the, the toilet, like one big room there. Um, and I remember just feeling so upset. I felt like I wanted to cry, but I was so upset I couldn't. Nothing was coming. I just, do you remember like, do you remember when you were four or five and there's that one where you're getting told off and you can tell that your mouth is doing that sad face, almost like a cartoon sad face. I was doing <laughs> yeah. that, in, standing in this toilet, not touching anything in this toilet again as well. Um, and I just went, you know, this isn't worth it. This is not worth it. I need to get out of this scenario. Um and yeah, and then I realized for me, I was like, well, you know what? Like I need to get out for a while, at least I need some, it to be clean because I need to be able to perform and I'm not able to perform right now. Um, and yeah, so that was one of the big moments that made me go, this is it. Um, I also remember training with a team uh, in England, a semi-professional team in England and um, just the foreign seasons and the English seasons tend to be a little bit close together and uh, sorry, different, different times. And um so I would, I would train with them like a fairly local team to me. A mate of mine was the manager. And I remember playing a game for them, like just a sort of like training type game. And some people knew there that I played a bit and so on. And so they wanted to see what I could do. And I tell you what, I, I wouldn't have got into a like Division 10 Sunday League team. I was absolutely awful. I just couldn't focus. I couldn't get my head to it. I was thinking too many things. I was having to do too many things. Compulsions were taken over. Um and again, that came at a fairly sort of similar time to it. And I thought, I was just like, you know what? I don't think, I, th I think you should try and reclaim as much of your life as you can. Absolutely. And I think you should fight OCD as much as you can. But sometimes you almost are so close to the project, the job, the passion, the whatever, that it almost becomes a barrier in itself because you're trying so desperately hard to not lose that thing that the trying to not lose it is making you lose it. Sometimes you need to let it go for a while. And then see if it's something that you can get yourself healthy enough to come back and enjoy and do properly. Um, and that's how football was for me. Then I got I got healthier, I started to see recovery. Um, and A, I knew that I had just very publicly spoken about my mental health. I knew that wouldn't go down phenomenally well in the football industry, especially at that time. Uh, things have moved on, but they've moved on dramatically over the last few years. Um, but this was, you know, talking about nine years ago. Um, it was a little bit, it was slightly different. Um, and then also, I just thought, like I said earlier, it can be football and my life can be football forever. And that's great. But I'm learning some things here that I think I can help other people with. And I think I can probably tell this story in a way that maybe some people might relate to and, 
And I think it will probably do more good than what football could probably do for me. That being said, every so often, you know, two or three nights ago, I was up at three, four o'clock in the morning thinking, oh my God, what have I done here? Um, so it, it sometimes has little periods where where that comes in, but quite rarely now. Yeah, no, totally. It was actually making me think there. Uh, it's, a, it's a question I, I'm asking of myself a lot that, you know, I guess that my um, my my equivalent to wanting to make a left playing football was I always wanted to be a magazine editor. And I became a magazine editor and I was there. I did it for a long time. And just, it was totally the wrong job for someone with OCD. And I kept going and going and going. Um, and I am now kind of pretty confident in my belief that it's not a job that I could do again. I don't think I could manage people. I don't think the OCD made that very easy at all. Um, I don't think that the detail needed with jobs like that, I could just go on and on and on. I'm just not suited to it. I'm super, I'm super creative. I'm super driven, uh, really passionate, really good writer all, you know, in many ways, everything that you, uh, would need in a job like that, but it's just not great for my OCD. And I'm, I've kind of questioned whether that is sensible or whether that's avoidance, you know, and we're taught a lot with treatment for OCD that avoidance is, you know, isn't a good thing. Um, with you, was it more that you just felt like you needed to get out of it because it wasn't good for you or you couldn't perform at the level you wanted to, or was there a degree of avoidance there? A little bit of everything. I think a little bit of everything. Um, so I got to the point as well where I started to self-medicate too. So I think my body was starting to give up on me a little um which you know lots of jobs where or you know passions where maybe you could do that and get away with it for a period of time maybe but probably not in anything sport related um in lots of cases so there was definitely that i think there was a big part of it as well that it was just it was every single part of my life like every single part of my life and i think what i come to the conclusion of was that i think it would be avoidance and there's definitely a part of it that would be avoidance but i think it'd be a major issue if i was saying that regularly about everything if i'd reassigned that to something else then i'd probably say yeah that's avoidance thing if i'd found a new passion post football and had done the same thing again i'd probably come back to it and go this this isn't the thing it's this isn't the vehicle this is the yeah the, in me that's the problem here maybe um but it hasn't because I think it was the right, I think that's the vindication I have that that was probably the right choice. Um, validation, sorry, that was probably the right choice. Uh, but that, yeah, definitely an avoidance factor, feeling to it as well. Um, I also felt, I just felt like, a, a, I think an enormous amount of pressure being in a position where there was a lot of opportunities to um, do things that was my complete passion and that had been my, I suppose, my, my little boy dream um whilst not whilst knowing that I wasn't well so I think where you say as well about like when you was when you was editing I think there's a big part of that as well maybe that you know I think sometimes these things can come a little soon for us but in our recovery journeys maybe and I think what I would say is now if maybe not for something like football because obviously I suppose you age out of that a little bit but maybe something like editing maybe if I was in if I had the that same dream as you um I think I'd probably feel a little bit more confident the way I feel right now I think I'd maybe feel a little bit more confident that I would be better 
at that maybe going forward knowing that i'd been through it and seen where those buttons were for me do you ever feel that do you ever feel like i know you said about how you feel like maybe that's not the job for you but do you ever have periods where you think to yourself well now that i've experienced it and know my own buttons a little bit better i'm now front facing rather than it taking me by surprise does that make sense yeah, it, it it does. I mean, I think the thing with me was that there was so many, you know, no pun intended, but there was so many like, um, there there was so many like red cards for me, like along the way of like, this is a problem. You need to get some help. And for me, you know, I've got a re- I've got a really quite unique, I think, and close relationship with my mum. And there, my mum has always instilled real strength in me so when i was i used to work at the enemy uh the music magazine and uh that was really where well i mean the thing was was like when i i mean this just a brief potted you know potted history of myself no, go for it. people listen to this podcast every week will you know we'll, we'll, we'll know this off by heart but you, you know like looking back it always it'd always been there you know i guess my sort of equivalent of the uh stone story was uh, just one day I thought about death and couldn't stop thinking about death. And that was years, you know, that was just, just utter, utter terror all the time. And with that came uh, compulsions of things I had to do to basically keep myself safe. And I, I you know, I had no idea that was OCD, you know, until many, many years later, but I had a thing when I was uh, 14 where I overheard something my parents said about a family member, and then that became uh, – I started to believe that that person was a paedophile. No you know, no evidence for that, and I, I got it dreadfully wrong. This person wasn't a paedophile at all, but it wasn't something I ever sought clarification for, and I just thought about it and thought about it and thought about it, and then it became – I started thinking of ways that I needed to make myself safe. Um, and then I, you know, went off to university. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 19, I just, I, I had a tattoo when I was 19. I've got a load of tattoos now, but I had my first tattoo when I was 19 and I just w- couldn't stop obsessing. That. I had got AIDS. Um, I went for AIDS tests, like basically every, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I think the window back then was like three months. Uh, and I, I'm I'm pretty sure I squeezed four into a year once. It might have been even be more. Um, You know, and I went to the doctors. They put me on an SSRI. Uh, It kind of went away. And I always kind of think about 21 to 25 as like the OCD free years. But when I think about it, I was obsessing that like my boss at the time could hear my thoughts. So, you know, I wasn't free from it. It just didn't impact my life in the same way. Moved to London started working at the enemy and then I guess where I'm trying to get to with my mum is that I I would ring her at you know midnight because I couldn't get out of the office because I had to touch all of the tables all of the desks in the office and and just weird things as well like I, I would I would read I would read interviews that bands would do and I would start obsessing that what they were saying was about me and it was just 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 madness really and i got a uh diagnosis when i was 28 i went oh well you should see my flat it's really messy that's you know that that doesn't chime yeah. with what i think ocd is and then ignored it so i think that like you know basically i you know i had a total breakdown when i was like 
uh, 37 uh, when I'd left the magazine that I was editing and then found my, found a support group. They basically told me that, that all the therapy I'd done in my life were, was wrong and they were totally on the money. And it was one of the best pieces of advice anyone's ever given, or best clarification anyone's given me on anything. Um, and then I paid to see Professor David Beale. He gave me another diagnosis, directed me to the Maudsley, you know, and that's kind of where I'm at, where I'm at now. And but I guess though, for years and years and years, the thing that kept me going was my mum. It was just because she would just be like, you know, I love you, son. You are really talented at what you do. You're not going to give up. And she would use in every like uh, manipulative trick in the book of like your grandparents would be so proud and all this sort of stuff, you know. And and it just kept me going. It kept me. Not, <laughs> it just stopped me from giving up. But it was. At this, but at the same time, the wrong it wasn't wrong because I don't think I'd be here otherwise. But it really, I never had that moment until thirty-seven where it was like I'm on a railway track and this, and I can't live. I can't live with this rumination, you know. So I think that, like, you know, when I look back at the jobs I were in, I think that the world of journalism, although I am a journalist, you know, but the world of magazine office of, I mean, I used to like, you know, when I was doing a magazine cover, you know, it it was influencing the sort of stories that we would cover on the cover, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, and words, because I would be like, well, if I print this word, then these people will think that I'm this or, um yeah and there was just a lot of you know I, I need i need i really need to do some work on this and i'm not actually sure what that work is and i i really need some help with it but i have a lot of stuff about um like almost like facial in, in the interpretation of facial gestures so a trigger yeah, yes. a, a, a trigger can be like a raised eyebrow or like a blink and being in an office and managing people, that was a fucking nightmare. And um, I think actually as well, like, well, you know, I'm, I, I made some mistakes and they were led by you know, just things where I'd be like combative with people or, and they were led by this silent yeah. chaos, you know? So I think that I kind of made the decision. Yeah. Like, I think I made a decision, like I say that, you know, it's, um, I don't want it to be avoidance, but I also just think that putting myself in the situation when I don't think that I am better, I just think that I'm stronger and have a bit more of a toolkit, if that makes sense. I mean, a friend yeah, of mine makes loads of sense. A friend of mine, she, she won't mind me saying this, but a friend of mine, she uh, has OCD and she trained to be a pharmacist and she had to stop being a pharmacist because she couldn't stop obsessing that she would mess up a prescription and therefore be responsible for someone, um, you know, them overdosing or them taking the wrong medication. And, it, and it's yeah. heart, it's heartbreaking that she had to give that up. But at the same time, I also understand why she gave that up. And I don't think that's avoidance, but just this isn't the right job for me. So I think very, very long winded. And I don't really want to end this podcast with me waffling on. Um, I think that's, 
that's kind of where I'm at, really. But where I want to end this podcast is I want you to tell me the best goal you ever scored. There's just so many to choose from, James. <laughs> um, uh, I was like the probably four a season. Um, uh, I, I was maybe more... Um, oh, God, there's even an outside chance that he would, he would hear this with your links. I was maybe the more Craig Clay than James Hayter. Oh, all right, okay, all right. Um, James so, Hayer, James Hayer, man. Was, uh, I mean, as I, like to, as I like to call him, Sir James Hayer. There wasn't a, an awful lot of goals there. Um, I remember, I remember one. I remember one taking one um, that was my my version. It was like a Poundland Van Basten, should we say? <laughs> right. That's probably the one I'm going to go with. Like a total angle. Yeah, oh, it was it was a ridiculous angle, and it was in. We had had a bunch of serious games. And then I had I was coming back to fitness and I paid him what was a version of I suppose a county cup against a team maybe seven or eight divisions below us. No one there, uh, no like no press there or anyone filming it or any pictures or anything like this because no one cared. It was a pointless game, and that's where I decided to get the touch of Van Basten about me in that one. But that was definitely the best one. I think I think about that one much more than I probably should. <laughs> Do you like that I played it coy at the beginning? As if, oh, I don't know. I don't know which one it'd be. Straight away, I'm thinking Van Basten. Oh, no, that's, that's amazing, man. That's amazing. Um, I have to say that um, the, the conversation has gone quite dead on this front recently, but there was, there was talk with some of my OCD friends um, probably a year ago of uh, forming an OCD uh, suffers football team so if that does ever happen I am definitely giving you a call uh, I feel like you I feel like you would be our secret weapon the OCD Chronicles is brought to you by sufferers of OCD not mental health professionals This is a place to educate and inform from a perspective of lived experience, but not to advise. Thankfully, the United Kingdom is lucky enough to have two great charities for OCD and their related disorders. One is called OCD UK, the other OCD Action. I personally have found them hugely helpful in my long and storied journey with this wretched disorder. You can find them easily enough online. Solidarity with sufferers. OCD is hell, but there is help. The OCD Chronicles is brought to you by James McMahon. That's me. It's a spook media production. Until next time.